Disrupting Worship, the podcast, is a set of conversations about the future of gathered worship. In the midst of struggle and tragedy, lockdown has offered us an unprecedented opportunity to pause, reflect, and reshape what it looks like to meet with God, the world, and one another. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Disrupting Worship podcast, hosted by myself, Grace, and Sam. And today, I'm going to press pause because I've now had a five-year-old <laughs> one in. <laughs> Keeping right, it so, real. Keeping hi, it real. Hi. Uh, right, right. Let's say hi, and then we're going to say bye-bye. Hey, let's say hi. Say hi, to, say hi to Jay and Sam. Hi, Jay and oh, Sam. Hi. <laughs> So cute. Okay, okay, I'm coming back. <laughs> so cute. Okay, great. So I'll start again. So hi, everyone, and welcome back to Disrupting Worship podcast, hosted by myself, Grace and Sam. And today I'm really excited because I think um, we've got uh, Jay uh, from Silicon Valley. And I just said to Jay earlier, just having you just makes me feel very glamorous and that, you know, we, you know, there's glitter now all over our podcast. So, so I'm really honoured that Jay is with us. And so, Jay, just give us for, I've got to be honest, until Sam mentioned me, uh, told you about me, I hadn't heard of you before, to be honest. But I know you've got a book out. And so just talk us a bit about yourself, a bit about your book, just paint the picture for us Brits, um, yeah, about yourself and what's on your heart. Sure, yeah. Well, it's um, I'm honored to be on with you guys, Sam and Grace, and um, love, you know, love the way you're leading in the way of, uh, of worship there in the UK. Uh, yeah, my name's Jay, and I, I'm a Silicon Valley native. I've been here basically my whole life here in... Uh, the San Francisco Bay Area of California, and um, I'm a pastor. Uh, I, I serve on staff at a church called Westgate Church here in the Silicon Valley, and I also uh, am a teacher in residence at another church called Vintage Faith uh, in Santa Cruz, which is a sleepy little beach town about 30 <laughs> minutes from us. Um, and yeah, I'm a husband, uh, and my wife Jenny and I have been married about 12 years, two little kids, uh, six and three. So we're kind of in the throes of, you know, young parenthood as, you know, Grace, you're familiar with that word. Yeah. I feel your pain. I feel your pain and your joy. Yeah. There is joy. That's but right. Yeah. It's both. It's both um, in equal measure. And um, yeah. yeah, so it's, uh, we, no, we're so grateful for our life. And uh, yeah. And then uh, last year I released a book called Analog Church, Why, Why We Need Real People, Places and Things in the digital age and um, by sort of divine providence, I guess, I released a book suggesting that we need embodied presence uh, in, in terms of what it means to be the church uh, in the same month that embodied presence became impossible <laughs> as the pandemic locked everything down globally. And uh, so that was strange, but um, in hindsight, it was a real gift that, you know, if there was anything I would want to say in the midst of COVID, uh, it's what I say in the book. So, um, so I'm grateful, you know, that the timing worked out the way that it did. Did you have like five minutes or two days of like, oh my goodness, what is, you know, we did yeah. you have to spare for a moment? Yeah, I had two weeks of that. We, wow. uh, at least in my part of California, we locked down right in the middle of March and the book was 
set to release at the very end of March. So I had several, you know, somewhat frantic, frenetic emails and phone conversations with my publisher about, do we need to delay? I mean, is this sort of, you know, um, man, is it, is it wrong to release a book like this Mm -hmm. at a time like this? Uh, anyways, we had some conversations. I, I lost a little bit of sleep, but ultimately at the end of the day, it just felt like, no, this is, this is exactly what I would want to say, you know, yeah, in this yeah. moment, not that we can do these things right now, but, um, I think, you know, I was, I, I was, I was fairly confident that locking down was going to, um, help us get more deeply in touch with, the sort of innate longing and desire we have for other human beings, you know, for embodied presence. I was pretty sure that that was going to be the case. So I thought, you know, in fact, this might be the best time to release this book. So we did. And um, it's been, it's been great. Yeah. Yeah, I've been really grateful. Yeah. I've got to say it's it's really helped me in the last year or so um, in lots of ways. And I'm going to read a bit back to you, which really, the, the title of this this podcast is Disrupting Worship, and Grace and I have talked a lot and with other people we've talked to about this word disruption. And you write um, on page 25, leading our churches headlong into digital spaces in hopes of creating an easy-to-consume Christian product severely diminishes our ability to meaningfully impact the culture around us and invite them into more meaningful spaces. The church was never meant to be derivative of the cultural moment, but rather a disruption a disruption of it amid today's onslaught of digital distractions the analog church is exactly the sort of disruption we need most to be effective in our cultural moment and that's mm. like jumped off the page to me as i was kind of rereading this uh, over the last week that you know not only have we been disrupted in the last year but you're saying in the book actually and you can maybe unpack for us what you mean by analog church but that that analog church is what we need as a disruption in our culture. Do you want to just speak into that stuff? Sure. Yeah. Well, but first by analog, I, I, you know, the word has some elasticity of meaning. um, But what I mean is analog in the, in the sort of purest, simplest definition, meaning embodied tactile, Mm -hmm. the Christian theological word would be incarnational in the flesh. Yeah. You know, the way Christ came in the in the form of a of an actual literal human child, you know. Mm. Um, so that's what I mean by analog. So therefore, what I mean by analog church is church as an embodied, tactile, incarnational, shoulder-to-shoulder reality. Yeah. Um, and that idea that the church is not meant to be a derivative of culture, but rather a disruption to it. It has a lot to do with, I think, the calling toward transcendence over and above relevance, which is mm-hmm. another idea I propose in the book. I, I think that always, I mean, throughout church history, we have wrestled with this push and pull. On the one hand, we want to be relevant to culture. We want to be relevant enough so that our message is heard, that it's relevant to the real lives of real people. So I'm not saying relevance is unimportant. It's actually critically important along those lines. I mean, if we're just spewing, you know, gospel truth in a way that is completely unrelatable to people's lives, then we're just talking, but not really being heard. So it has to be relatable. It has to be relevant in that way. 
But I think sometimes relevance, and in recent years, especially relevance has been taken to the extremes where now, rather than just focusing on the message, the gospel being relevant to people's real lives, we're trying to be relevant in like, you know, aesthetic ways. (laughs) We're trying to look, sound, and feel Mm. like everything else in culture. And in the digital age in particular, one of the forms that that's taken is the rise of sort of like church as a product, as an online product Mm. intended to reach the masses. And I I would say that that's not in and of itself bad. You know, I think that there's some good that comes from that. But I think it's dangerous when we pursue relevance in that way at the expense of transcendence, meaning at the expense of offering people um, experiences, opportunities, communities that really, again, getting back to the point, disrupt the regular everyday norms of their lives um, and just look and sound and feel like everything else in culture. I think if we're... I think if the church tries to compete on that level, we're going to lose every time. Mm -hmm. If we try to compete as a sort of product to be consumed, the reality is like Netflix and social media, TikTok, you know, like (laughs) we're going to get crushed. There's just way better, way more entertaining content out there Mm -hmm. for consumers Mm -hmm. to consume than anything the church can ever offer. But that's because the church was never designed to be... um, you know, a product to be consumed. We're, we're a community to belong mm-hmm. to. And that mm-hmm. is something that um, digital media, Netflix, social media, all of those things, that's something that those things can never offer, you know? And I think that in, mm-hmm. in large part, that's what it means to be, for the church to be a disruption to culture rather than uh, a derivative of culture. Mm-hmm. My brother, um, He's younger than me, and he was commenting. Um, he he longs for Christians to become uncool again. Mm. So I know in England there's a thing about you know Christians probably in the 70s and 80s used to wear awful shorts and uh, <laughs> white socks and sandals, and you know they just were not cool. Yeah, and uh, he was concerned about uh, in as he said in that pursuit of relevance. Yeah. Christians now they look just as cool as everyone else, and yes. and they don't look distinct. And he just said, "I'm I'm hungry for the time when we look uncool, yeah. and we're happy to be uncool yeah. because we are grounded in something in Christ. So it doesn't matter whether I've got socks and sandals on. So just what you're saying really really resonated uh, with me. And just yeah, and he just was wondering, you know, can we get back to those uncool days? Yeah. Um, and stop trying to have a really cool Instagram feed um, that is comparative to influencers, um, where he said, actually, we're, we're never meant to be cool. You know, there's a, there's a journalist, what you're saying, Grace, reminds me of this. There's a journalist named Ben Sixsmith, and in the Spectator World magazine, he wrote this article. Um, uh, you know, I don't know how many of your listeners would be familiar with this, but there was a big, one of the many recent sort of falls from grace of many evangelical leaders. Um, and there was the big story like a year ago or something of Carl Lentz, who was the lead pastor of um, Hillsong, uh, Hillsong's East Coast churches. And this is not an indictment on Carl. I don't know him personally. 
Um, and I actually empathize. I'm sure he's going through a lot right now, but he made some poor choices and had a major scandal and fall from grace. And, um, and then this guy, Ben Sixsmith, who's a, who's a journalist, not a Christian, he wrote this article about Carl Lenz and his perspective as a non-Christian. And he says this in his article. This is what you're saying, Grace, reminds me of this. He says, I am not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. <laughs> That's from a non-Christian yeah. journalist yeah. talking mm -hmm. about a pastor who looked, sounded, and felt like the coolest thing walking the planet. I mean, he was like mm -hmm. on the cover of not just Christian magazines, but tabloid magazines, you know, and... Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's relevance taken to the extreme. I don't think an unbelieving world is looking like what your brother is saying, Grace. I think he's spot on. I don't think an unbelieving world is looking for churches and church pastors who look just as cool as everything they see on mm. TikTok and, and Instagram. Mm. I think they're looking for something else. In many ways, I think they're looking for the uncool. <laughs> they're looking for yeah. genuine. Yeah. They're looking yeah. for real, they are. you know? So, yeah. And that's, yeah. And that's been my experience. So we have two young uh, Iranian uh, gentlemen who started coming to our church. And when they first started coming, I felt like saying, I think you should go to the, in, I didn't tell them this, but in my head, I said, kid, but we're the uncle. We're not a sexy church. You know, I've got a lot of old people who I love and we're all a bit random and mishmash. And, you know, halfway through the service, I'll forget something and have to leave and go and get it. And we don't have a sound and we do karaoke praise. You know, we've just got a screen and we sing along and there's an old organ that's played. I just felt, I just was thinking in my head, I was just thinking, why do they want to hang out with us? And yet two years later, they're still with us and yeah. they got baptized on Pentecost mm, Sunday beautiful. because what they were desperate for was relationships, yes. relational. And I think we underestimate the power of one-to-one. -one. We underestimate the power of our humanity yes. and that we were wired to be fused together, to hang out with one another, to rub shoulders. And they've kept coming back. Yep. Um, and it's and that has humbled me and increased my confidence in that I don't need, I think even as a uh, a priest in the UK, you can feel this pressure to conform to what I call our sexy churches. Um, and that's throughout all denominations. All denominations have what I call sexy churches. Yeah. Um, but actually, and they are a gift to us, but I'm also learning to treasure what you have, which may seem very chaotic, a bit messy. It's small usually, but actually that is what people are, are looking for and that's what these two young Iranian guys were looking for and at the ages of 19 and 18 got baptized mm. because that's what they were hungry for yeah. and I suppose I just want to you know so I think your book is affirming that you know that maybe as pastors we have lacked comfort I suppose we've got too wooed by the voice of the world which yeah. is unless you look like this do this sound like this you know no one's going to pay any attention but yet the world as we know we still long to be loved and long to belong. Yes. Period. Yeah. And that's not going to change whether you have a TikTok of a million people or, or no TikTok. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So so yes, yeah, yeah. so I'm really excited about what you're saying. And I was just saying to Sam, what I love about you know the fact, Jay, that you're in Silicon Valley 
is that I'm always fascinated when someone so far away who you've never met is actually asking in similar questions mm. and trying to work out, okay, God, what are you doing here in this place at this time? So I have a question for you, Jay. In light of, you wrote this book before the world shut down. Mm. How did that book inform how you how ministry operated when you couldn't physically meet? Were there some things you decided, whoa, 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 we're not going to get sucked into that? Or there's some things you did do, but you were so aware of the analogue that that influenced how you did, did things online or not online? That's a great question, Grace. Um, in many ways, uh, we, we, you know, we try to communicate to our people because we went online. <clears throat> we had no choices. So we, you know, we, it was either yeah. nothing or go online. Yeah. So we yeah. made the decision, we're going to go online. But when we did, we tried our best and I don't know how effective we were or not, but we tried our best to communicate to our people a couple of things. One, that our online experience was, um, uh, it was a compromise, not a convenience. We mm. tried to really communicate that, that this is not, um, designed to make church more convenient for you, that this wasn't and isn't a part of sort of, you know, our long-term future. Hey, we're never going to get back together. This is so easy. You can just sit in your jammies and watch from home. No, we try to communicate very consistently. We miss you. We miss being with you. We miss seeing you. Um, and this is what we have right now uh, as we sort of uh, work for the common good, you know, I mean, um, we want to keep people healthy and it feels like this is what we have to do to do that. And, and, and for our public witness to the world, you know, we didn't want to be, there were some churches in our area actually, who got really up in arms with our County. And were basically like, we don't care what you say, we're going to meet in person anyways. And that just did not feel Christ-like for us at all. Yeah. So we said, no, we're going to, this is sad, you know, we, we are saddened by the fact that we cannot be together, but this seems prayerfully, this seems like that, like the best way to embody Christ, you know, in this moment. So, but we try to communicate that regularly. This is not a convenience. We're not trying to make church more convenient for you. This is a compromise or a concession. We're just trying to leverage digital technology to stay at least somewhat connected. And, you know, we did little things like the, the chat feature and we try to, you know, but I mean, that's so little, it's, it's nothing like real <laughs> connection, but, but it is something. And then we tried our best as sort of the, the restrictions lifted over time. Every time restrictions would, would lift, we always pushed to the furthest edges of what we could do in person. So as soon as, as soon as our county government would allow us to, we began having midweek prayer meetings and we uh, set the sort of RSVP limit to like the maximum that the county would allow us to have in person, you know, outdoors with masks on. And um, so we tried our best to do all of those things. And, uh, you know, people are still very slowly coming back. I mean, our COVID statistics here in our county are actually really, really good. Um, we're, we're close to reaching 
herd immunity, not in our country, but at least in our county, we're very close. And so things are really opening up in our county and in California in general. So we've started to gather in person. We've been gathering in person indoors, actually, since Easter. And that's been a wonderful gift. Um, but I, I would say we still have at least half, if not two thirds of our people who are still watching online. And again, we're still trying to communicate to them when you are ready, we would love to see you here in person with yeah. us. And, and many of them have good reason, you know, that mm -hmm. we validate their fears. They're anxious and nervous. And so we're not pushing them or guilting them at all. You know, take your time. We'll continue streaming the services online so you could at least stay connected. But we're communicating very clearly. This is not meant to be a convenience for you. It's a compromise. And, and we, mm -hmm. we, you know, our deepest longing is, for, is to see you in person. Yeah, I think I think for many people, um, I mean, here in the UK, we are still quite behind where you are, I think, in terms of things opening up that literally yesterday, the government has pushed back their opening up right. by another month. Uh, lots of churches are in that, you know, have not started gathering together again. But I think also there has been at least, you know, and maybe the UK and smaller churches are also behind in terms of digital technology. I think that for some people, their eyes have been opened to the possibilities of that. So yeah. for some people, it's the first time that they have done an online service or they have had even simple things like a church WhatsApp group or, you know, a church mm -hmm. Facebook group. And, and actually there has been um, an opening of eyes to, well, some communication and some community can be at least facilitated, uh, you know, through some of these digital means. And then going forward, the, the language certainly in the UK is of hybridity. So yep. lots of people are saying, okay, well, when we finally, you know, are meeting together full force, we are still going to continue an element of, uh, you know, videoed service casting or, you know, and, and people talk about things like, you know, it's great for older people who can't get out or people with disabled yep. children. Or... So I'm just wondering, you know, how... Um, how do you approach those things, you know, given that you can see some real downsides to an over-reliance on digital technology, but how, what would you say to those kind of people and how, you know, how, how hybrid do you feel you want to be going forward? Yeah, it's a great question, Sam. I, I agree. I agree with you. You know, again, I, I wrote this book before the pandemic um, and if I have no regrets about the book, but if there were something I could add, which which I can't, because <laughs> the book is already published, I'm sure there'll be a second edition, Jay. Yeah, that's an updated version. That's right. <laughs> if there if there were something I could add, it, it would be, and I would, I've readily admitted this on on other interviews. You know, I, I do I, I do feel like I didn't give enough credence to some of the benefits, the potential benefits of digital, and you named some of them. I don't mention how digital technology has actually been a huge, um, uh, tr a tremendous value add for shut-ins, for the elderly, mm. uh, for the physically compromised, even long before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, I should have given probably more uh, energy toward that. Um, I am clear in the book though, a lot of people assume uh, it's pretty funny. I, you know, when I receive critique about the book, which which happens from time to time, I can tell immediately people who've actually read the book, and then versus people who are critiquing just based on the front and back cover of the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah because yeah. Um, sometimes people will critique me and say like, 
this guy hates digital and he's asking everyone to be a Luddite and turn their own butter and go live on a farm, you know? <laughs> and if you read the book, I literally verbatim say, I'm not a Luddite. I actually have deep appreciation for digital technology and I'm not asking you to turn your own butter. I, um, I you know, yeah, you know, I say very clearly in the book, I think tools and technologies are amoral. They don't have an inherent morality. Although you could argue now that the algorithm design of social media in particular does have sort of an inherent morality. It's kind of mm. breeding us and curating our online experiences. So that might be changing. But in general, technologies don't have uh, an inherent morality. The problem is the ways in which humans leverage the technology. Mm. And so... I'm not against digital technology. What I'm trying to point out is that when we allow ourselves to lean into digital recklessly and carelessly and thoughtlessly, yeah. it becomes really dangerous. It's like a hammer. A hammer in the hands of a skilled carpenter can build and it can create much good in the world. A hammer in the skills in the hands of an unskilled person, or worse yet, someone with ill intentions, mm. is a dangerous weapon that can mm. really destroy and harm. And so it is with all technologies, including digital. So I agree with you. Digital technology is here to stay. I do think we're entering a hybrid future. It's something we talk about at our church as well. I think that we are going to keep our online service going indefinitely into the future. But the language we used here is hierarchy of hybridity. Hmm. We talk about that a lot Great. at our church. Yes, it is a hybrid future. Yes, we are going to keep a digital component, but there is a very clear and defined hi hi hierarchy here. We will always prioritize what happens in person over and above our online stuff. And what I mean by that is not that online becomes like the ugly stepchild that we ignore. <laughs> what I mean is we use online to promote and to encourage and inspire and provoke people toward more and more analog embodied experiences mm -hmm. when they're ready. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we, we often talk about how, you know, at our church, we've got folks who are watching online from other parts of the country and even the world. So one of the things we're talking about is encouraging those folks to say, hey, we're so grateful you're watching us. We hope that this is an encouragement to you. We just want you to know that watching a service on your computer screen or your television is one small slice of what it means to be the church. So we would encourage you, find a local community that you can belong to. Even if you wanna continue watching our services because the worship is encouraging to you or you get something out of the, the sermons, whatever it might be, that's great. But we would also encourage you find a local community of followers of Jesus that you can embed yourself in. And we will help you do that. If you reached out to us, let us know. We'll, we'll do our research. We'll ask around. We'll find some churches in your area that based on your sort of connection to us, churches in your area that that might be a good fit for you. So um, that's that's been kind of our approach, a hierarchy of hybridity. Great phrase. Mm -hmm. I think that's really, really helpful. I'm, I'm just transitioning because we're at that point where um, we haven't streamed actually because we just didn't have the resources mm. emotionally, mentally, spiritually <laughs> and financially yeah. to do that when we entered lockdown. 
Um, but it's we've just become more and more aware of some members of our congregation except physical accessibility is not gonna is not coming back. Mm. There's still gonna be challenges. And so I know as a PCC, that's kind of like our board, we're gonna, we're looking and about actually how can we permanently receive a future always stream our 10 o'clock service for those members who that that physicality is, is going to be difficult. But I love that language of always encouraging the the analog. And then the, the challenge then is for there've always been people in our congregations who have found it physically difficult to get into church for a number of reasons. So then the challenge is what does analog look like for them? And I just wonder, Jay, what how your church has explored that before the pandemic, post-pandemic, when you have people who are housebound yeah. or they're permanently caring for a disabled child. Yeah. And, you know, just getting up out of bed is that is their win for the day. Um, so how what have been your thoughts about what does analog church look like for for those members of our community and also maybe future members of our community? Because we want to offer analog to them analog is not an i'm sure you'd agree analog is not an able-bodied uh privilege yeah it is is it is for everyone because yeah. christ came for everyone so i just wondered what your thoughts were about what does analog look like for those members of your your fellowship who coming in it's, it's just not on the table yeah i think that's a critically important question that you're asking you know even the data shows at least here in my part of the world um, in the U.S. in general, in California specifically, and especially so in the Silicon Valley, uh, our population is aging. Um, people are getting married later and people are living much longer. So what that means, at least for us here, is that uh, people are getting, um, people are living into their later years and many of them uh, either don't have children, increasing numbers of them either don't have children or close family or children or close family who are close by. Um, that's a, that's an increasing reality for us. And uh, even beyond that, not just the age thing and the elderly, but, you know, they're physically like people who physically for a variety of reasons cannot experience analog um, in, on a consistent basis. So I think that's a really important question for the present and the future. And I don't have any easy solutions other than to say for us, our philosophy has been, and we borrowed this from a friend of mine in the area who, who leads a, a large church. Um, for those uh, who are unable to get to church, um, our philosophy is going to be, is and is going to continue to be to try our best to take church to them. So uh, a friend, this friend of mine who leads a large church in the area his church has um, a significant older population. Many of them are shut-ins. So actually they do this really beautiful thing where almost every Sunday, two of their pastors will take, um, they'll take like a, a DVD or something of the sermon and they'll take it to several um, convalescent homes or uh, assisted living facilities where the elderly are, you know, they're shut-ins. And they'll gather the folks in their church um, who live in these places and some of their neighbors as well in one of the meeting rooms. And they'll, um, a couple of pastors will go and one of the pastors will lead a couple of old familiar hymns on the guitar or the piano. And then the other pastor will give a quick little sort of welcome and then they'll play the sermon and then they'll have some discussion, pray for folks, take communion together. 
and uh and they so they take church to them you know mm. now that's even that is limited because many shut-ins don't live in communal environments many of them mm. are just in their own individual homes so how do you execute that for individuals you know and those are the challenges that we face those are the challenges that we're trying to figure out so during covid we just did very small little things like we asked shut-ins um if we could deliver groceries. So we divvied up our staff and, and started delivering groceries and putting groceries at front doors and uh, praying for people, you know, from the front yard. Uh, we actually started leveraging, it's a funny thing, you know, nobody uses phones to talk anymore. I still remember <laughs> the days when phones were um, devices we used to actually talk to people. Um, my, my kids just think phones are computers, you know, they're like tiny <laughs> yeah. back pocket computers. Um, but we started actually calling people. So we, I serve at a pretty large church, but we took our entire list of people who would consider themselves members of our church. And this is like hundreds upon hundreds of people. It was actually over a thousand people. Mm -hmm. And we divided that list amongst our staff. And during COVID, um, we, three different times we spent several days calling everybody on our mm -hmm. list mm -hmm. just one-on-one -on -one calling mm -hmm. hey john how you doing this is jay from westgate just calling the check-in hope you're well mm -hmm. and it's not completely analog but that personal touch of a phone call feels way more personal than like an mm -hmm. email or a text yeah. or a yeah. direct message or something so um no easy answers you know no quick solutions but those are just some small things we're doing mm. to try to fill that gap for those who can't be here yeah, yeah that's great and how about i mean this uh podcast is ostensibly about worship although we tend to veer into mission and ecclesiology and all yeah. sorts of other things as well but i'm just thinking about you know the the practice of gathering, I can see how, um, you know, this might be about, you know, veering away from the digital to some degree where we can, but also positively, how, what are some analog worship practices, embodied incarnational worship practices that you're trying to sort of lean into or you want to emphasize as, as soon as you can? What, what would you be encouraging people to, to lean into? Yeah, it's not monolithic. You know, I, I don't want to say, hey, this is prescriptive of what I believe every church should do. I, I, I think that that's one of the great gifts of local churches is mm -hmm. God calls women and men to particular communities, mm -hmm. you know, so um, he does that for many reasons. But I think one of the reasons is because he is calling you to those people to know their stories and mm -hmm. um, to understand the, the sort of context and culture that is embedded within that community. And then to do your best, whatever that looks like, to help that community, um, you know, follow Jesus faithfully and experience mm -hmm. God richly in whatever ways work best for that community. So not prescriptive, but just de descriptive of, of what we're trying to do. Um, you know, in in the sort of worshiping life of our church, particularly when it comes to singing and music, we're trying our best now as we gather again to um, really, really intentionally and directly emphasize that worship is liturgy, that it is, in other words, the work of the people, mm. not a, a product to consume uh, that the Christian professionals curate and then you, the consumer, 
you know, consume. Um, mm -hmm. uh, instead, we're saying when we gather, this is our worship that we're creating together to lift up to the Lord. And if that is true, then it can only happen here and now. It can only happen as we are all together creating. Um, it's a fascinating thought, you know, when you think about music, up until like 150 years ago, music was by definition an ephemeral experience, meaning that Absolutely. if you wanted to hear or experience music, you only had two options. You either had to create the music yourself or with the people around you, or you had to take a journey to a place where music was being created. It was the, it was the only two ways that you could experience music until 150 years ago or so when recorded sound became a technology. And now fast forward to 2021, in my back pocket on this little device I call a <laughs> smartphone, I have access to basically any and every song ever recorded in human history with the touch of a few buttons. Mm. And so what that has done in terms of our, I, I think the Christian understanding of music and worship in particular with music mm. is we think of it as a product. Mm. You know, we think of music as a product. And so mm. when we come to church, we just, it's hard for us to snap out of that mode. Mm. Like, oh, this is another product and this great band or these musicians or whatever are creating this real, this product that I, I consume. And, you know, Grace, you were describing your church earlier about karaoke <laughs> worship and just, you just play this thing and then everybody, there's actually a real significant beauty and power in that. Mm. In that for your community, it, 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 again, going back to the earlier point, it's a disruption to everything else culture tells them about music. Mm. When they go to church, music is not the way they experience music everywhere else in their life. At church, music is something that has to be created communally. Mm. Like if you all don't sing because there isn't some sort of professional band, mm. if you all don't sing, then there is no music. There's just the underlying background track of the karaoke <laughs> track. <laughs> There's no singing. There's no words, you know? Yeah. And so that's a really profound and, and beautiful opportunity. And in a church like ours, where we do have musicians and a band and a worship leader and all those things, we're trying to catch up to you in many ways. We're trying to teach <laughs> our people, yes, we have microphones and speakers and amplification, but the reality is like worship, the way we truly understand worship as liturgy, the work of the people, it's not gonna happen unless you and I create it together and mm. offer it together as our collective sacrifice to the Lord. So um, that's kind of a roundabout way of, of answering your question, yeah. but that's kind of been that's our great. approach. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting just to share with you, Jay, what um, we're trying to do in my little neck of the woods. So um, uh, I told the church on Sunday that I'm not going to be doing any sermons uh, in the Church of England. We've entered into a time called Ordinary Time, mm. where there's no major feasts or festivals. Um, and so I said, look, you know, Paul tells in Corinthians, let everyone contribute. When you gather, everyone contributes. So I'm asking every member to share with him a song, a piece of art, mm -hmm. something that uplifts your spirit. And it's going to build us all up in this time when we're feeling really depleted. And I think you can't, that's the joy of analog is, you know, and so people have been sending me, you know, a picture or a poem. And again, it's just trying to move away from what they experience in the world they just consume. So there's a, a lady, Lily Allen, um, a pop star, 
she said, you know, we're weapons of mass consumption. Mm. We've become weapons of mass consumption and that is killing our planet. It's also killing ourselves. Yeah. And I hear that what you're trying to say, Jay, is when it comes to church, we're disrupting that message. We're disrupting yes. that truth. Yeah. And saying you are not a weapon of mass consumption. That's right. You're made in the image of God. You're a God bearer. You are a creator. Therefore, when we gather together, we will co-create. Um, and I just find that really exciting. But often as a pastor or vicar, that can be quite challenging because you you feel, I don't know, Jay, if you ever feel that swell of, well, I've just come. You do your thing. I've done my bit. I've turned up. Yeah. <laughs> now you do now you do your bit. Mm. And it's sometimes a challenge to disrupt even that attitude when we gather together of actually, no, we, we're all co-creating right. this glorious symphony to the glory of God. It does, as you say, it takes that intentionality. But it does sometimes, you know, Jay, if you feel it's a swimming upstream because the, the current downstream is that I will just plug in mm. and I'll be passive and I will consume because that has been, I've been told that is my purpose on this earth yeah. is, is to consume. Yeah. 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 I think that's exactly right. I, you know, the being here in the Silicon Valley is pretty interesting. Many of the people in our church uh, either work in tech directly or they have one or two degrees of separation from tech, you know, their spouse works in tech or their child or yeah. their neighbor. Um, and by tech, I mean like big, big tech, the stuff that like mm. runs our world in many ways. So mm. uh, the main campus of Apple is like 15 minutes from where I'm sitting right now. And the main campus of Google is 20 minutes and the main campus of Facebook is, you know, 25 <laughs> minutes and, Twitter is 40 minutes. I mean, it's all right here. Mm. And it, it becomes pretty abundantly clear when you spend any length of time with the men and women who work on these products. You know, there's that famous story of Steve Jobs who publicly said that he doesn't allow his own, he didn't, you know, uh, when he was alive, he didn't allow his young children to use Apple products. Mm. Um, that's not conjecture. He said that in an interview, I, I forget where Rolling Stone or something like that, but he just publicly said it. He was like, no, I don't, my kids don't use the stuff I make. And he explained essentially saying uh, they don't use it. And I'm paraphrasing him here, but basically what he said was they don't use it because I know how addictive it is. Mm. I'm not willing to get my kids in that sort of loop of addiction mm. to the products I make, you know? Mm. <laughs> well, that's like extremely sober. <laughs> I mean, like if you think about it, uh, the person who makes this stuff is like, I don't let my own kids use it. I mean, it's essentially, and I'm not saying, you know, I love Apple products. I have an iPhone and I'm using a MacBook, yeah. whatever. Yeah. So again, all in moderation, but like, to the extreme, what Jobs is saying is like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a drug dealer. And I would, of course, I would never <laughs> let my kids use drugs. Are you kidding me? I just sell the stuff, you know? So at its extreme, that's that's what it becomes. And it makes us, like you said, consumers. Mm. You know, we're no longer human. We're just machines buying mm. stuff, mm. you know, pushing mm. buttons and mm. clicking and scrolling our way through life. And that's no way to live, in my opinion. Jay, I've got another question. What do you think stops us or prevents us being relational? Because that's how I'm interpreting what you're talking about. Yeah. It's about being relational. So I, I read uh, a, a podcast um, and I read an article where when we're in the midst in the UK of, of the pandemic and uh, this Christian woman who works in Romania said, 
when there's a crisis, all you have left afterwards is the relationships. Mm. That's all you have. And yet we know that. And yet we struggle to prioritize that. I just wondered in, uh, I've not read your book, but I just wondered, because obviously there's been stuff about relation, you know, that whole relational be being relational beings. Um, what have you found kind of makes us hesitant about doing that? And how are you trying as a gathered community to prioritize being relational? Mm. That's a great question. The question is a little bit above my pay grade. <laughs> there's been, there's been um, you know, there's been wonderful stuff written. Uh, there's a little book called The Relational Soul that I would recommend to anybody and everybody that's just like profound. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of reasons, you know. I, I think there are issues of, you know, there's like all sorts of, you know, family of origin stuff, trauma stuff. Uh, it's hard for us. It, it's becoming, in my opinion, it's be- becoming increasingly difficult for us to trust and to be vulnerable with one another, again, for a variety of reasons. So I think relationships are challenging for a number of reasons. You know, most of those reasons way, way outside of my area of expertise. And, and, you know, I would just kind of send people to uh, men and women far smarter than me to to speak to that. I will say, though, uh, pertaining to the topic of sort of the digital age, I think one of the reasons why relationships are so hard for us is because we no longer know how to have real human relationships and interactions. Mm-hmm. Our interactions are so commonly and often mediated by digital means <clears throat> and digital means have a particular built-in culture to them. There's a particular cadence and a particular rhythm in how we communicate and how we engage online that is very different than um how we engage in person, you know? So I think that there is some unlearning and relearning we need to do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old and it's been pretty fun to watch my six-year-old sort of blossom in the last year. Um, up until she was about five, she was like incredibly shy. And she, she still is a fairly internal introverted kid. But in the last year, she's really blossomed and come alive where mm. she's learning how to relate to other people and it's building a sort of confidence in her. She was, uh, my wife was telling me just yesterday, you know, my wife had a play date with our kids and, and some other kids, um, some friends of ours. And my wife was saying yesterday over dinner, she was just so pleasantly shocked at watching our daughter kind of lead this group of other kids. Like, come on, let's go here and let's go there. That just has not been her personality up until the last six to 12 months. But I think it took her all those years to learn how to relate and how to live confidently within herself. And she's going to go through all sorts of other ups and downs, you know, when she goes through puberty and becomes a teenager. And, you know, life is just a constant sort of rhythm of learning and unlearning and relearning how to relate to people. And I think we make the mistake of thinking that once we get to like 18 or 20, we've mastered it. And that's actually untrue. I think life is a constant ebb and flow of learning, unlearning and relearning relationships and how to relate to people as we grow and change and as people grow and change and as cultural moments come and go. And I think the pandemic has been one of those moments where all of us collectively, and by all of us, I mean like globally, just humans 
are going to have to unlearn and mm. relearn how to relate to one another in healthy ways. Mm. Um, but <clears throat> a relational God has made us in his relational image. So there's no denying that that work has to be done. You know, human beings are relational because God has made us that way. So it's hard work, but I think that it's work we have to commit to. Yeah, yeah definitely. Awesome. Thank you. Thank That's you. awesome. Uh, we need to come into land. Um, I just wanted to read one other little bit from your book because I, I love this. Uh, you talk about sort of in contrast to all this sort of digital excess, you talk about going to Haiti and the, a worship mm. experience you had in, in Haiti of just people absolutely kind of singing and worshipping from their heart and it being a really precious time. And then you say, you know, that you'd have similar moments in other un unfamiliar places, Asia, Africa, Central America. And then you say, uh, while each experience was unique, they all shared a common equation minimal resources plus a strong sense of community plus awareness of their need for jesus equals transcendent worship experience and i just mm. thought i'd read that because i hope that people listening to this will be encouraged because actually a lot of them feel they already have minimal resources you know <laughs> and hopefully they're pushing into this sense of a, a, a strong sense of community and then you know in this pandemic particularly we're all becoming more and more of our absolute desperation and need of Jesus and actually you know you don't write you know your equation doesn't involve and also having an amazing web stream or whatever you know? <laughs> right so I hope that will be an encouragement to people uh Jay we really need to finish but just let people know where they can um follow up on you any any web presence or ways people can kind of connect with you Sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Uh, I have a website, jkimthinks.com. And um, yeah, some of my written work is there, info on the book, some speaking stuff. It's all there. So jkimthinks.com. And then um, that's my handle on, you know, social media, Twitter, Instagram, just jkimthinks, Facebook, wherever. So there you go. Cool. And maybe one day we'll meet you in analog form. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. Thank you so much. We'd love to. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Thank yeah, you Jay. It's Bless been a pleasure. Man. Thank you. Visit engageworship.org slash disruptingworship for reflection questions and links to resources for each episode. You can get in touch with us by email on info at engageworship.org and also via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at engageworship.org.